All right, if you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8, I don't know who this is, but I'm going to put it right here. Okay. We're in the uh, kind of the first third of Exodus, and uh, we're going to continue to go straight through it. We will, um, we're in the midst of the plagues right now, which extends over, <clears throat> excuse me, about three chapters, three, four chapters. Uh, it'll take us through the party of the Red Sea to, and, you know, ruin the story for you, through the parting of the Red Sea and deliverance and into really receiving the law of God. We'll take a pause there for just a little bit, uh, just a couple weeks, and then restart and finish uh, the book of Exodus. So I appreciate you, you going with us. We try to just kind of go straight through. And um, as I've gone straight through various books, and this is the longest one we've gone through, I've seen that there's stuff that just is really difficult to preach on, to be honest with you, um, because uh, it's just... Theologically complex. It's impressive upon my heart and convicting sometimes. So I hope I don't butcher it for you today. We'll hopefully do the best uh, and let God's word speak uh, more than me. So Exodus chapter eight. We're actually going to start just by going straight into the scripture because there's a lot to read. Uh, we're going to begin in verse twenty, and uh, we've just ended with they kind of go through. There's ten plagues. There's kind of a series of three plagues, and the tenth plague kind of set out by itself. And uh, the first series of three were the Nile being turned to blood, and the second was the frogs we talked about last week and the stinkiness that that brought, and then the third was the gnats, and we've just ended with the gnats, which came without warning. Um, it was just a, a direct unleashing of, of wrath on Pharaoh for his disobedience. So now we're in verse 20, and we get into the fourth plague, and God does something different. And the plagues and the wrath are getting extensively more painful, more personal. Uh, the Nile and the gnats and the frogs are things you can kind of avoid if you wanted to. It, it's difficult, it's stinky, but there's ways to get away from it. Now it gets really personal and it starts to attack their bodies and he makes a distinction. And so we're going to talk about that distinction that God makes uh, with his people and with the people of Pharaoh. Verse 20 is where we'll begin. And it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and to his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And then Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me, 
And then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. So then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Seeing a pattern here. He's not really changing the instruction. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses and the donkeys and the camels and the herds and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Last few verses. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air. In the sight of Pharaoh, it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking in the sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in the sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all, I'm sorry, the magicians and all the Egyptians but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, contrary to popular belief, I am not a fire and brimstone only preacher that goes through scanning scripture to find as many wrathful, infested passages as possible. But I'm also not the kind of preacher that only skips around and looks for softballs. And if you watched our softball team, I'm really bad at hitting softballs, so um, you know that that's not even a good idea anyway. But... If you've only come to our church a few times, you've heard basically three sermons on God's wrath, and you're going to hear somewhat of another one because we're in the plagues. And if you're going to go through God's story, of which he wrote and intended every word for it to be important, then we have to deal with a wrathful God and the things that he does in Scripture. And I've found that it probably would be a lot easier if I did what I see a lot of really popular, mega-church, super-filled, rich churches doing if I just preach some of the sermons I hear, uh, presently there's one, they're all in text it seems like, presently there's one that the pastor stood up, and he's not the only one to do this, and he's preaching a series where he's challenging married couples to go have sex for seven days straight. The pastor before that did like 30 days straight, sex for a month. What a fantastic idea. How many people would be coming to church Knowing that, especially husbands, knowing, yeah, babe, we're going to church this Sunday, because they know what they're going to hear, and I would be loved, at least by the men. The women would be like, what the snarf are you doing? So, it's a fantastic idea, I guess, in the, in the idea of it would be popular. But I looked at some of the other sermons that were listed from various preachers, and I'm not trying to make fun of them. All I'm trying to distinguish is things that would be a lot easier to do, and that I don't necessarily enjoy preaching on, but here's some of them. 
um, quote, developing the habit of happiness. I would love to preach on happiness. Okay, I just have, I guess, a different way of doing it. Seven steps to a better you. I would love a better me. And if it only takes seven steps, even better. Okay, Or do all you can. This is a quote. This is a sermon title. Do all you can to make your dreams come true. I want my dreams to come true, right? I could throw that down on our website or on our bulletin. What are we going to hear? Okay, God's wrath or do all you can to make your dreams come true. What would you do? Okay, it's a pretty easy decision, it seems, but I have to go with what I know best, and I've understood that I don't know much. So I just stick with the Scripture. And I go straight through the Scripture, and if it's God's wrath, we're going to talk about God's wrath. And if it's God's wrath, that would be really interesting. God's wrath. (laughs) But if it's there, we're preaching on it. But, and if it talks about God making a distinction of people, which we're going to talk about today, which is difficult... We're going to preach through it, straight through it, trudge through it, sit on it, because I expect the people that come to our church and anyone I interact with to want to know more about their God and want to meditate on some of the difficult things because everyone can ignore the difficult things and everyone can pretend they're not there and make your cute little God idol there that really isn't much like the biblical God. And I also realize that I'm a little handicapped in terms of empathy. I don't have much. Because there's ways to preach sermons that, you know, I know that some of those really, like, happy guys could preach on God's wrath, and you would leave there feeling like, wow, I just, you know, I'm so in love with everything, and and wrath is awesome. So I understand, and I unfortunately come from a little bit of a, uh, more of a prophet. You know, Jesus is that prophet, priest, and king. you got the kings who are very organized and sequential, and they're like, well, God's wrath works like this, and it's like these steps to damnation, you know, and all those things. And then you have the priests that are like, oh, God loves you. And it's, it, these are all good parts. I need to be all these things. We all need to, to demonstrate all these things. But the prophet comes and tells people they don't want to hear and tells the difficult things at times. And so there are some passages that are going to come out like that. And that's what is going to happen today, I think. And I'm, I'm going to try and explain some difficult things. And my hope is that um, we don't run away from it. And we don't leave going, mm, I just don't believe that. But you sit on it and wrestle with it and struggle with it and look at all of Scripture, not just your five verses, to think about what you actually believe on something. So let me give you a quick summary of what just happened in, in Exodus and then focus on maybe a part of it. The third plague basically transformed right before this time all the gnats, all of the dust into gnats. And in a very real way, the magician said, this is the finger of God, and God was writing in the sand, so to speak, in the dust, saying, you guys are bad. And they saw that and went, we are really stuck, we can't fix this, but they never got to a place of repentance. Pharaoh hardened his heart, refused to do what he said he would do, and so God unleashes another plague. It's the fourth plague. And again, he sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, and he tells them the exact same message that he's told them for the last three times. Let my people go that they may serve me. Let them go. And he calls them to repent. And you'll notice that um, this is, they, well, what happens is he refuses, says no, and he says, well, here's what's going to happen if you refuse. Swarms of flies are going to come, and they do. And it's, you can look at the, the Hebrew talks about this, it could be a multiple type of fly. Scholars kind of look at all the plagues and see why these things might have happened naturally, and they think they could be maybe one of two 
different types of flies. One was a gadfly that caused a lot of blindness in the time, and one was a dog fly. And the dog fly would attach itself to you and really bite you, not like a mosquito bite, but start like kind of digging into you, kind of like a horse fly does if you've ever been bitten by a horse fly. And it would often leave a, a boil of sorts. Um, in Psalm, I think it's 7845, remembering the, uh, the plagues, and specifically this one, is described this way. He sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them, literally ate them up. So they're getting eaten. The plagues are getting more personal, and they're starting to get chewed on by these bugs. And so, again, Pharaoh refuses. And in this particular fourth plague, God says, look, Pharaoh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a distinction. The people in Goshen, which is where uh, Joseph and his people settled, it's kind of in the, uh, the upper portion of the Nile Delta. It's a great shepherding kind of uh, where the, the sheep and the, the grazing can occur. It says, I'm going to set apart this land and these people and make a distinction. They're not going to experience what you're going to experience. And that's exactly what happens. And they swarm into their house, take it away. They kind of had some kind of sense of security with their homes because they could hide away from the gnats, hide away from the frogs. But now it comes up, it says, even under the ground of their own homes. You can imagine these bugs just kind of like everywhere, okay, attacking them. Still refuses to repent. The fifth plague comes and they again go before Pharaoh and they say the exact same thing. Let my people go that they may serve me. Thus says the Lord. And Moses and Aaron don't know how many plagues are going to happen at this point. They don't know. They haven't gotten the grand scheme, master plan that God has. So they think that every time they go, they are very hopeful. I don't believe that they are sitting back going, hey, look at them suffer. And no one likes to see suffering, no matter who it is. And so they're hopeful that they're going to be released, that this will be ended. And so he tells them, let them go. And if you refuse, we're going to kill the livestock. The Pharaoh refuses. And so the livestock are killed. And he tells them specifically what ones. And it's not, I don't think, necessarily a condemnation on the gods, because there's some of the animals that are listed there There wasn't really a god to connect with. I think it's a somewhat of a condemnation on the whole economy again. And the things that they, they strike, or God strikes, is the cattle, which obviously are associated with agriculture and wealth, and the horses, which are uh, military in role. They pulled the chariots. Um, the donkeys, which were the beasts of burden, they would carry the, the hay and whatnot to, to help with the construction. Uh, you have camels and oxen and then least of uh, those, which is the sheep. And so, um, again, God makes division. And he says, I'm making distinction. And so this all happens and Pharaoh goes out and he sees that all of the livestock are killed. And we know that it doesn't necessarily mean all, because every time it says all in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean all. You have to read the context and you know that Pharaoh still has enough horses to chase the Egyptians into the Red Sea. And so didn't kill every single horse that was there, not to mention hail ends up killing some animals later. So all in the sense of every kind of animal and livestock that the Egyptians had was struck. And he sees over Israel, not one, not a single kind, not a single dog, nothing is struck by this. And instead of him repenting and going, I'm really stuck in this. And God is very powerful. He hardens his heart again. And then comes the sixth plague. Without warning, and it's probably the worst of these three, and Moses and Aaron take handfuls of soot from the fiery kilns, and they throw it up in the air symbolically, and it becomes boils. 
And boils are just nasty. Um, you can imagine them on a very small scale as like, you know, big zits. But talking about big zits, okay, like Vesuvius, Mount St. Helens type zits everywhere, okay? And you would, um, Job experienced boils, and when you describes in the Bible, often it talks about having boils from head to toe and to the soles of their feet. And so they couldn't even walk because of, you know, you know whatever stuff squirting out and the pain that's associated with that. Yeah, it's nasty. They're covered everywhere. And it specifically attacks the magicians or the sorcerers or the priests, really, of the, of the day, which is interesting because they thought that boils resulted from two things. One was bugs, and the other was bad hygiene. And so the priests themselves had these ceremonial washings they had to do like multiple times in order to be pure to worship to their own gods. And so it was an extra little jab to the priests of what they were experiencing. So it's disgusting. People are covered in boils and they're suffering, but it's only the Egyptians and it's only uh, Pharaoh. And so, in, again, you go back to Exodus chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, and it applies to all three of these plagues. God says specifically, I'm going to make distinction between my people and your people. Now, I want to sit on that for a second or for a while and just kind of talk about what that means. If Exodus is more than just a story, but it's a story within a larger story that is the salvation story for anyone who believes in Jesus. And if you start looking at it that way and not separate it out of all of Scripture, it may take on a different meaning for you. If we look at just what happened, the first, second, fourth, and fifth plagues, God calls Pharaoh to repent. He goes to him and he says, obey. There is one God, not many. You need to worship me and let my people go so that they may worship me. And he warns him every time, this is what's going to happen if you don't obey. You'll have consequences if you sin. And we have to remember, God's command to Pharaoh is just that. It's a command. This isn't a man coming with a suggestion. It might be a good idea if you obey God. This isn't a nation negotiating. This is God making a command to say, do this or else. And if the command is not followed, this is what will happen. And the reason why he's doing that, which we've talked about, is he's exhibiting wrath because it is a just and righteous and morally perfect God's response, a holy God's natural response to sin and disobedience. If he does not respond that way, if he just lets it go, then he is no longer just, no longer good, no longer many other things. It is his natural response. He must punish sin, otherwise be less of a God. And his consequences have to be guaranteed. Or he's not God. He's either lying, or he's not powerful enough to make the consequences come. Either way, he's not God. And so... God comes and commands Pharaoh, very clearly. And the Bible says that the world is full of Pharaohs. The world is still very much Egypt. He comes so that everyone can hear, if we talk about the the Egypt really representing the biggest empire, the center of the world, so to speak, at that time. It is very clear, the Bible says, that God's command has gone out, that there is one God and that you to obey this one God, and to worship this one God. 
If you look in Romans chapter 1, which is referenced a lot in these types of sermons, I guess, verse 18 in Romans chapter 1 describes very clearly what the situation is. And it sounds very much like Egypt. It says this, For the wrath of God, beginning in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Sounds like the Egyptians, specifically the magicians. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The command has gone out. There is a God. There is an authority. There is one to worship. And everyone is without excuse. How do you interpret that? Everyone is without excuse. There's no excuse. Okay? Continue. For although they knew God, just like the magicians, this looks like the finger of God, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. Sounds just like Egypt, but he's speaking several thousand years after that. And he could say the same thing today. Men are no different than they were back in Egyptian times. We live in very much a present-day Egypt with men's hearts are exactly the same. And God's command has gone out to everyone, and they refuse to recognize Him, although he know, they know He's there. And like I said last week, they worship all kinds of idols. And although some people probably have snakes and birds and things like that, um, we worship stuff that's much more complex. Money, relationships, sex, food, alcohol, whatever it is that one thing that if taken away from you makes your life miserable, if that's not Jesus, there's your idol right there. And everyone has them, and they get replaced fairly regularly. I might just be speaking myself, but that's what happens in my, my world. But Pharaoh, who represents, I think, the world in rebellion, he hears the word of God directly. I mean, he hears it very plainly to his face, not having to see it in creation. He has spoken directly to it. If there's anyone who can't plead, I didn't know. I didn't know what God wanted from me. I didn't know he was there. Pharaoh is the last guy that can claim that. Four out of six times, and there's going to be more, men have come to him and said, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Obey. Repent. Very clearly. In fact, God's word has been spoken to him publicly, plainly, boldly, clearly, consistently. The same words, doesn't change, the same way over and over again. So you have to ask yourself, and I, maybe I'm the only one to ask myself, why does he or the other Egyptians really refuse to listen even though the magicians get to a point where they recognize he's there? They recognize this has nothing to do with their gods. Why won't they obey? I mean, it just seems dumb. You're facing all these consequences. Your lives are being devastated. Now your bodies are being pounded on. It's going to get worse. Why won't you obey? And the reason, I think, is because they live out what Romans 1 teaches very clearly. 
that they know a God is there and they suppress the truth that they know God is there. In 2 Timothy 3.8, Paul writes about how people's minds are corrupted and they know the truth and yet they deny it. And in doing that, he references the two magicians or sorcerers or priests of Egypt to prove that this is the same thing that's happening that did happen. In 2 Timothy 3.8, I think, is the reference that says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, speaking of present day, also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And we like to believe, or we think that, you know, if that person out in that island somewhere, or just my brother or whoever, if they just only heard it like Moses and Aaron... You know, if they could come with a Moses and Aaron and tell them directly, thus says God, look at plague, oh, they would believe. They would definitely believe. God hasn't sent us the word like he did back then. And I would say, wrong. Hebrews 1 talks about how God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell people about the one true God, the one God you were to worship. And then he says, and in this last days, he's spoken most clearly in Jesus Christ. The Word, not just a word from the God, the Word of God incarnated Jesus Christ to come and declare, this is the one true God you must worship. And now, instead of telling people about, hey, there's a hail that's going to come and destroy you and your crops and your cattle, we declare the gospel. And I was saying this last service, we, uh, we first gathered together as a church. Um, I gave them a little note card, passed out, and they're like, what's this for? I was like, participation. And this is back when I'm like preaching on God's wrath in a little circle of people like, Argh! it was really fun. But I gave them this card, and I said, I'd like you to write one thing. And this is the one thing that Romans 1.16 says, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation. And if that's what it is, we probably know what it is. And he says, it's the gospel. So I want you in your card, because, you know, you're all Christians, right? Yeah, we're all Christians. Okay. So tell me what the gospel is. Go. Jesus loves me. That was about the heart of it. Some are a little more creative, but they didn't know. They didn't know what the gospel was. We talk about it. We uh, say it's the most powerful thing there is, but no one knew what the good news of Jesus was. So what about Jesus? Well, let me tell you very plainly. So we don't have any mistake. And then you'll really be without excuse if you don't believe. And that is this. You and I are sinful. We are broken. We are rebellious. We are no better than Pharaoh, who refuses, though it's very obvious, to believe and worship the one true God. And we decide to pursue all kinds of other gods because it makes us feel good. Calvin calls our hearts idol factories. And we produce it all the time. We make idols out of chairs and anything else we can think of if it will lead us away from the one true God. We are sinful. We are broken. And because we can't save ourselves, God does. And He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, who comes and lives a perfect, sinless life, which is even hard to imagine. Sinless in thought, deed, and word. And He goes, and because you owe a debt, and I owe a debt to God that we can never possibly pay, He goes and dies on the cross because the penalty of sin is death and pays our debt and dies the death that we deserve. Then, 
If that's not enough, he raises from the dead to declare, number one, he wasn't lying. And two, he conquers sin and death and frees me from death and frees me from sin. And then he takes that perfect, sinless life that he lived and he goes, yours. So that now, when I believe, my heart is transformed and I'm accepted. I'm accepted because of what Jesus alone did. Nothing I could do to free myself. Nothing. And so we preach that. And we tell people that. And we let the Holy Spirit dictate the belief. It's not a matter of persuasion. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.2. I love this passage because it makes me feel really good when I think I jacked up a message. Like, well, did I preach Jesus? Okay, we're good. And this is it. 2 Corinthians 4.2, he says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience to the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These are the kind of verses that a lot of pastors will skip. Because it doesn't make you feel good and it makes you maybe a little bit confused. But the reality is this. I'm not going to be creative with God's Word, just as Aaron and Moses never got creative. The first time it, it didn't work for them, and Israel basically turned on them and said, what did you guys do? You messed it up. The next time they went before Pharaoh, they didn't say, okay, we didn't understand. What I meant was that you should probably accept what God's going to say, because bad things are going to happen. I don't think you understand the bad... No, they came in and said... Thus says the Lord, God says, let my people go that they can serve him. No. Okay, here's what's going to happen. Then they leave. Come back the next time. God said, let my people go, or else you're going to pay the consequences. No. Obey. Let them serve. Period. They never got creative. Because it was God's word. And the power wasn't in their persuasion. The power was in how much they dressed up. The power wasn't in how much they talked about happiness and wonderful things so they don't offend you. It was the power of God's Word. And that is what the power is in any time we talk. It's in the cross. It's not in my way of dressing it up, which I'm really not very good at. Okay. Now, the thing about it, because we have to ask, like, why, why aren't people believing? Why are people believing? Men don't believe, quite frankly, because Romans 1 says they are blind. As 2 Corinthians says, they're blind. They are blind. Men's hearts, according to Ephesians 2, are dead. They're dead. Let me read it. So then you can just argue with God. They're dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through about 3. They are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind. So all of mankind is blind. All of mankind is dead. All of mankind, the Bible teaches, does not seek after God. So Egypt, if it's just a picture for us to, to show us the larger story, Egypt is this idolatrous world similar to what we live in. And God, as difficult it is, in the midst of this broken, wicked world, God chooses. God chooses to set apart a people out of this wicked world to save. You can't get around that, even starting in Exodus. He chooses to love and protect one group that he's going to call my people and unleash his wrath on everyone else. Now, we think that like, well, God's just choosing here. Well, God's election of people, and we'll use that word, God's election of people happened way before this. It's all throughout Genesis. You start way back with Noah. Remember the story of Noah, right? Noah had three sons. And he specifically chose Shem, one son, to bless him. He specifically, out of a very sinful world, chose Abraham. Because he was great? No! He wasn't great. But he was great because God chose him. And God blessed him and said, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to promise you offspring that will bless the world. And then Abraham had two sons. They were named Isaac and Ishmael. And God chose Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And, according to Scripture, God chose to bless Jacob. And then Jacob had twelve sons. And God chose to select, in a very strange but awesome way in itself, Joseph to bless all of them. He has always chosen a group out of wickedness, by His choice alone. They were far from perfect, and it doesn't take much of a reading of the Old Testament to see how imperfect these men were. We should never get to the point that believing that these guys were chosen because of something wonderful in them. They were not chosen because they were good in themselves. They were the same children of wrath that all of mankind were, but God said, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to bless you that I might bless others. Now, Exodus then, if Genesis is the story of choosing, really, this people that he's going to redeem, Exodus is the demonstration of redeeming those people that he's chosen. And it continues on pointing us to our ultimate redemption in Christ. And God, in that verse in Exodus chapter 8, in the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek scholars decided to translate the Old Testament into Greek. And when they translated it, they looked at this word, this Hebrew word, and they translated it, not just division, you probably have in your Bible. God says, I will not just set division, I will set redemption between these people. I will set redemption between your people, that being the people of the world, and I will redeem my people. There will be a distinction, a difference. And he does this with the livestock, where he just kills their livestock and saves Israel's. And then he does it even more so in the dark, great plague, plague, when the angel of death comes through and kills. And he even says, it's a great verse, Exodus 11:7. we'll deal with it soon enough. It says, 
but not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast, who may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. So the Exodus is more, I believe, than a story of redeeming and enslaved people from this dictator, the most powerful dictator in the world at the time. It is a demonstration, I believe, of how he redeems anyone. How he redeems anyone. Now, the core of what I want to do, at the heart of what I want, is not to upset or, or confuse people, but it's to declare the greatness of God's provision for us. Because I think we have a tendency, I know we do, our hearts are a tendency to go into this man-centered perspective of God. That we choose Him. That we work for Him and He owes us something. Versus God has given us everything. Even salvation. Holistically salvation, not just you choosing it. He's given you even the ability to believe. And that's difficult. But think about it. It's easy for us to look at the big bad Egyptians and go, wow, I can see how they're wicked and they're bad and they threw babies into the water and how they're just evil people and they chose to rebel. I can see that. But I think we have to ask ourselves, although it's easy to see someone choose unbelief, why does someone choose belief at all? Why does someone... You know, the Israelites wake up one day and go, I feel like being free from slavery today. Do they even have that choice? No. No, they don't. They can't just go, hey, um, Pharaoh, it's been great. Last 400 years has been awesome. But um, I've decided that I really don't like your oppression and slavery, and I'm going to leave. Um, like, we be dead, okay? Like, that's it. You don't have that choice. But for some reason, we, we take these stories separate and we go, yeah, but God redeems me differently. Does he? I'm not convinced he does. I believe the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation that we don't choose God until he chooses us. And I know some of you come from different theology and you go, that doesn't make sense. But I think that's what the Bible teaches. I know that's what the Bible teaches. Because I've met some pretty messed up people. That's the only reason I can understand why they believe. I've seen people pulled from the darkness of dark. And I'm like, dude, you didn't just decide to do that. God chased you down, grabbed you by the back of your collar, and yanked you. Because there's no way you could have gotten out of that yourself. God is the only one. You know, we, we like our free will. We like to believe we have a lot of free will and free will choices. Um, God is the only one that really has free will. You can, your choices are limited, so are mine. I've always wanted to fly. Well, ain't going to happen. Okay? I've tried since a little kid. If I could have a superpower, it'd be fly. The other one would be shoot flames at them like my eyes. That would be cool too. Okay? But that's not going to happen. I can't choose to do that. I think it's funny in our world, a lot of people try to choose to be men and women. I'm a man. No matter how many parts I cut off or pills I take, I'm going to always be a man. Okay? I don't care what happens. I can't choose that. I don't have that choice. Okay? So our choices are limited all the time. And when we get to uh, obeying God, I believe because of, really, the condition of my heart, the condition of my rebellion, the desires of, that I have because of sin has done to me, I cannot choose to obey God. 
If I am outside of Christ, if I am just part of mankind, a children of wrath, I like it. And I am Romans 1, running away from it, suppressing the truth, telling others to deny it. I can't choose to obey God. That's the one choice I definitely don't have until God changes me. Until he takes that stone heart that Ezekiel describes me having, rips it out, throws in a heart of flesh, then I begin to work towards him. We like to believe like we can like do surgery on ourselves, right? Well, I'm just going to change my heart of stone. It's no longer a heart of stone. I don't believe that can happen. And here's why. Romans chapter 3 teaches the condition of everyone before God does anything. Romans 3 verse 10 says this, None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that sounds so much like what we're reading about. And it also describes Israel to some extent. Israel is only God's chosen people because God chose them. Period. Because God made a distinction. Because God set them apart. Exodus is the story of God coming down to an enslaved people, to a, enslaved to a dictator they couldn't throw off, a people that cannot save themselves. But very much we believe we can throw the Savior cape on and save ourselves. It is much like the story, what I think gives a clear picture of two things. One is Jesus in John chapter 9 healing the blind man. He meets a blind man. He heals the blind man. And the two possibilities on that, well, the blind man just decided to see one day. That's just stupid. And we all know it. The blind man couldn't see anything until God moved, until God healed him. And then his eyes were open. Lazarus, two chapters later. It's like God really wants us to get us some, right? Lazarus, he's dead. He's as dead as dead can get. He's so dead, he's been dead like those frogs, right? Sitting in there, stinking like crazy. Jesus shows up. A dead man doesn't raise himself. A dead man doesn't... Jesus here? Okay, I'm going. Let's go. Dead man ain't doing anything. Until Jesus calls to him and says, have life. That's when it starts. We don't choose to suddenly see. We don't choose that the story that is so foolish, that's how the Bible describes it, so foolish to believe that God came down, so foolish to believe that I'm a sinner, so foolish to believe that He paid for my sin on the cross, rose from the dead. What a foolish story. And I believe with all my heart. All my heart. And the question is, why? Why do I believe that? Did I wake up one day and go, hmm, that sounds like a good foolish story to believe in? No! No way! It's because God changed me. God transformed me. So it's the only story now that I believe. It is the core of my life. Because of God. But, if we can't just stop with that, we can't just stop with God 
saving and protecting from his wrath. Because I think what we do sometimes is we look and we say, well, he set them apart to protect them from wrath. That's it. And it's similar to people who come to Jesus and they go, fire insurance. He saved me so I could be protected from hell. That's a nice ancillary benefit. Just like it's a nice benefit that these people didn't have to experience flies and all the other plagues that are coming. Okay, They didn't have to experience that. But that's not his goal. His goal is release my people so that they will serve me. He is saving and redeeming his people for a purpose. And that purpose is to be a worshiper. To worship the one true God. That is his goal. Now, if you continue to read past the Red Sea parting, you'll see that these guys are not very good worshipers. They don't suddenly pick up tambourines and start singing songs, and they're just loving God as can be. They take a couple days, basically, after that, and they're whining and complaining, wanting to be back in Egypt. They're not real good at it. In other words, worshiping doesn't just come naturally to us. Okay? In our salvation, we, I'd love to, you know, when people come to be saved and suddenly, whoa, you know, I can just worship everything and I'm worshiping whether I eat or I drink and whoa, I'm, everything's glory to God. No, we still struggle with it. And God knew that the exodus or the people being redeemed in the exodus was going to happen, so he gave them the Ten Commandments. He says, you want to know what it means to be holy and to be set apart and to live that way? Looks like this. Then he gives them the entire book of Leviticus which is really dedicated to their holiness, to say, this is what it means to be a separated people. This is what it means to live in relationship with me. It's kind of like a prenuptial agreement. You want to be in relationship with me? Here it is. This is what it looks like. And he continues to show grace, not because these people ever become good. In fact, the law does a very good job, and Paul talks about this in Galatians, of showing them how sinful they are. In fact, they can never worship perfectly. They're always sinning. They're always messing up. But God has said, I will accept this. The whole sacrificial system. He said, look, I will give you this sacrificial system. This will cover your sins. I will be in relationship with you. Not because that sacrificial is something like super special. It's because God has chosen to say, this is what I will accept. And as they are unable to worship, as they are unable to really fulfill and they continue to go back to idols, they continue to sin, God points them to a final and ultimate sacrifice and a new covenant in Jesus. He's always talking about Jesus, always pointing about Jesus, always saying, this is where we'll end up. Exodus is just pointing to that. It's just part of the story as is Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the rest of Scripture. It's all part of the same story, and that is the story of God's gracious choice to love us, to separate a people for himself that they might worship him. And if we look back at Exodus, maybe holistically now, with a little different perspective, we see that he redeems Israel from an oppressor who is Pharaoh, but it's really our sin, bent on killing them. And we understand how if God does nothing, if God doesn't protect a people, if he doesn't choose a people, if we are left to ourselves, we will die. 
he has to choose because our desires are not to choose him. And when he unleashes his wrath on Pharaoh and he saves these people, I believe, as you see it, he gives more to Israel than just the opportunity to be saved. He doesn't just like, okay, now you can choose me if you want. They are pretty much forced out of Egypt. They are forced out in almost every sense of the word. And in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Exodus 15, after they go through the Red Sea, Moses sings a song. And in verse 16 of that song, he says this, Terror and dread fall upon them, speaking of the Egyptians, because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Your people pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. He did something for those people. He redeemed a specific people. In the same way God, I believe, sends Jesus to deliver us from sin and from death. And the price of those people, call it the church, call it the elect, call it whatever you will. The Bible calls it several things. But a specific, particular people... He purchases with His blood. And the wrath that we receive, or should have received rather, is poured out on His Son. I don't want to limit, and this is what happens, unfortunately, to limit the death of Christ to an opportunity for salvation. For whoever would believe, because I believe firmly, left to myself, I won't. But that he, in a very real way, doesn't depend on man to choose him and his potentiality of like, okay, well, he died, let's hope for the best. Because the possibility, although maybe not improbable, but the possibility is that no one will be saved then. No one will be saved. But in Exodus we see he redeems, he secures the salvation for people, guaranteed. So we talk about losing our salvation or anything like that. Ain't possible if he's choosing, if he is securing, if he is making sure it happens. We know, I believe, that we won't choose him. But he breaks through the unbelief all the resistance we might put up, He breaks through it by God's wonderful grace and provides us a means to believe. Our natural response, not a manufactured one out of duty, our natural response should be worship. Because we understand several things. We fear God. We see the wrath that He poured out. We see what He's capable of. And we have the utmost reverence for His power. And as we see that, we see what He saves us from. And we are grateful. We are so grateful. It results in a natural response of worship. Because all that we have, whether it be our money, our clothes, our house, our very obedience and salvation is from him by grace, which is makes God huge, makes him huge and not small. 
I'll end with this. I know maybe you guys have seen this before. This is why I think it's difficult for us to accept. We talk about the gift of salvation. There's a show on TV that I've watched well once. It's a millionaire show. Really rich people go around. I keep hoping they knock on my door, but we'll go around and they write checks. Money. Okay? I don't know if you've ever gotten gifts. I'm really bad at receiving gifts. Okay? Whenever you receive a gift, someone comes and you, my automatic response, if it's like a gift that I, you know, really impressed by, like, oh my gosh, I know it costs a lot of money. It's like, yeah, I can't take that. That's always our response. I can't take that. I should do something for it, right? My wife will write thank you cards. Okay? Me, I just say thanks and take it. But thank you cards, because you always want to thank the person, and then you get a thank you card for a thank you card, and all that. This is a mess. So the idea, though, is we'll typically say no. So these millionaires go around, and honestly, well, what happens is they spend a week in just poverty. Just poverty. They get a welfare budget, and they spend – these guys are like million, million millionaires – and they meet people, and they didn't decide by the end of the week they have to give away at least $100,000 of their own money. They've agreed to do this. And they choose who the money is going to go to. So one individual gave three different people money. Uh, and, and who they were isn't important, but the reactions were, they were speechless. First check, $100,000. For people, I think they were in Katrina, and they were trying to start a volunteer center or something like that. But they, they immediately, they take the checks and they almost hand it back. Like, that's just too much. What do I have to do? Nothing. I'm just giving you the money. And it happened again, it happened again. And honestly, and I'm not like this, and I don't say this to, like, you know, dress it up, but I was crying. I cried watching this millionaire show. I should be thinking, hey, cool. But I was just in it. Because I began to see if that is the reaction that someone gets when they, someone shows up out of the blue they haven't earned anything, done anything to earn it, so to speak. And he gives them $100,000. I was crying for a couple reasons. One, because I was convicted that if someone showed up $100,000, I would be more excited about that money than I would about the salvation God's given me. I would. I'd be like, Wah! oh, kissing them, hugging them, worshiping them. I mean, pretty much. And the second was for the first time in a long time, maybe, and it's because I'm going through this at the same time. God always does that. I began to see the width and breadth of what God has provided me and how much He has given me and how much of a sense of entitlement I live with and how much my resources are mine and my money's mine. My car's mine. My kids are mine. My house is mine. Church is mine. And how the only reason I have anything is because God said to me, you're mine. You're mine. And trust me, I did not deserve it. And you all have their own stories about why you don't deserve it too. But he gave it to us. And my response, and I hope your response, is to worship. We're going to take communion today, as we do every Sunday, to bring honor and magnify the greatness of the God that has given us everything, even our very belief in Him, who broke through all this oppression that we had 
really by our choice of sin, that He might save me. Not because I deserved anything. What an amazing God that is. If you're a Christian, I pray that you will savor maybe for the first time before you bring up here what God gave up for you. And if you're not a Christian, this is not for you. But I invite you to accept the biggest possible gift that you could ever receive. And it's free. It's free. And then join us. Let's pray. Father, I declare on this Sunday your greatness, your sovereignty, your beauty. Lord, you are just incredible. You provide us so much, Lord. Even the very breath I breathe and the belief that I have, Lord, you've saved me from my sin. You've pulled me from the darkness even as I continue to run toward it. Thank you, God. Thank you. I confess, Lord, that I am not as sinful as I am willing to admit. But in light of your holiness, Lord, I see it. And I declare your greatness and your holiness and your desire, Father, to express your love by setting a people apart. That we might worship you and be set apart, Lord, in this world declaring there is nothing more important than you. Thank you for loving me, though not lovable. And your son's blood is the only reason that we are able to pray and to be in your presence. Amen.